This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 511 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 295 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show Ron Stallworth. Now, Ron is a career veteran of the Colorado Springs Police Department, but he is also the gentleman featured in the movie Black Klansman based on a book he wrote uh, of the same name. So if you haven't seen it, very long story short, Ron was able to infiltrate the KKK as a young black police officer. So I'm going to let him tell the story on this interview, but as you can imagine, an incredible story, some very powerful lessons and tangents in this interview as well. So before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I really do love reading what you write. And then, of course, leave a rating. The five-star ratings do really make us more visible when people are looking for a podcast like this. And then lastly, take whichever means you have and share these incredible episodes. We're approaching 300 episodes of Behind the Shield podcast. That's 300 people telling their stories that I know will change lives around the world if we can just get these recordings to the people that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ron Stallworth. Enjoy. Brilliant. Um, so I'd love to start at the very beginning then. Um, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? On planet Earth, you're finding me in El Paso, Texas, where I grew up. Excellent. All right. Well, that's where I'd love to start. So if you wouldn't mind telling me like what your family dynamic was, what your parents did, and, and how many siblings you had. 
I come from a divorced uh, family. Uh, I was raised by my mother. Uh, she's deceased now. My father was military. Um, he was a real worthless bastard. And uh, my mother was the glue that kept us together. And uh, there were five of us in the family. I'm the third of the uh, five. And uh, that's, uh, that's the basic story. Right. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about how you certainly think, you know, thought outside the box when it came to your career in law enforcement. Were there any elements of your upbringing with your mother and your brothers and sisters that you think contributed to you being um, innovative when it came to your police career? Not really. My mother, uh, my mother was a minimum wage worker for her entire life. She raised five kids on minimum wage, and never once did she uh, go on the welfare rolls to uh, supplement her income. Uh, she worked. I'm very proud and always have been proud of the fact that uh, that was her basic personality. Um, she had one basic rule, and that was uh, because she dropped out of high school in her junior year in Chicago, she had one basic rule that she lived by, and that was none of her children would ever drop out of high school. And if uh, we did, we were we would be kicked out of the house. All of her children graduated from high school, and my older brother, five years older, who's deceased now, my older brother and I are the only two high school graduates in, the, in our immediate family. I mean, are the only two college graduates in our immediate family. Um, that was something my mother was extremely proud of. Uh, when I got my college de uh, uh, degree, I gave my mother a copy of it, and she sat there and cried because uh, she could never conceive of the idea of being a college graduate, much less having uh, a son, in this case, two sons, who were college graduates. So... I was always proud of my mother for being uh, a strong, determined woman, a strong, determined black woman on top of that, and uh, for keeping us on that straight and narrow path. Yeah, and that's, that's something that I talk about a lot on the podcast is you can change a pattern. You can change a cycle of, you know, let's say poverty or crime or, you know, whatever it is, addiction. Um, just by investing in, in your children and being a present parent. It sounds exactly like that's what your mom understood, regardless of, of uh, economic wealth. If you're present with your kids, you can set them up for success in their journey. That's very true. That's very true. And uh, if I have any regrets today, it's the fact that my mother's not around to uh, enjoy the fact that I have achieved a level of success that she never could have conceived of. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she's looking down and, and seeing every moment of it. Um, well, with the with the childhood um, arena, what about athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were young? I played uh, organized uh, sports up until the eighth grade. Um, I was a running back in football and a defensive back. Um, I ran track. I was a sprinter and a long jumper. 
I uh, played basketball, and uh, when I got into high school, I chose not to be a participant in sports. Um, I recognized the limitations of my athletic talent, and I recognized that uh, at the high school level, I would not be uh, as competitive, and therefore chose not to uh, sit on the bench. So I chose not to play sports. However, I was, uh, I started training in Shotokan Karate when I was 14 years old, and I participated in that for a number of years. Um, Got fairly uh, good, fairly proficient, became the instructor at the University of Texas El Paso Karate Club until I left El Paso in 1972. Brilliant. Actually, Shotokan was the, the first martial arts I started with as well. It was a great, great foundation for a martial artist. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, then you, you kind of touch on it in the book. Um, you know, when, when we get into the, the, the extremes of, of, um, you know, the racial bias, I guess, in the two groups that you highlight in the book and in the film, um, you touch on the fact that in other areas of America, it seemed like race was a lot more, of an issue than, than where you grew up. Um, so tell me what the, the environment was like in, in El Paso for a young black man. El Paso was a good city to grow up during the sixties. Uh, because even though El Paso is a Southern city and a Southern state, we did not have the racial tensions, uh, going on that the deep South did. Everything that Martin Luther King and uh, his uh, nonviolent army were battling, that was a reality show for us. Uh, we watched it on the evening news. We didn't have those activities taking place here in El Paso. Uh, we tuned in at 5 to 6 o'clock and 10 o'clock, and we saw the beatings that were happening down south. We saw the fires that were going on. Um, we saw all hell breaking loose with whites attacking uh, nonviolent, innocent, young black children, uh, peacefully protesting. And uh, as I said, it was more or less a reality show for us. And uh, I was fortunate in that sense that um, we didn't have to deal directly with it but we were aware of uh, everything that was going on. Yeah, well, a question for you, because I've asked this of a few guests, and I still haven't had an answer. You know, they haven't had an answer either. What baffles me is in the 40s, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm from England, so you know, we had the, the British Army, obviously, a lot of them were young white men, but we had you know, the Gurkhas, we had the, the Indian Army, we had all these different cultures that were fighting side by side against fascism. And we obviously had the same in the U.S. You had the Buffalo Soldiers, you know, and, and, and these incredible airmen. Um, and what I don't understand is how you go from unifying a nation like that, fighting a true evil, to then five years later stringing black people up from trees again. Have you ever had any kind of anyone explain how we transition from a, a, a a united front of America to that incredible racism again, just years after we were fighting the Nazis. Because America has never been united. That's a myth. 
America has always been white dominated from uh, from our inception as a nation in the 1770s. We have always been uh, white dominated. Uh, our very constitution, uh, our, our, our uh, freedom documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, uh, they were false. They were lies. Uh, you got to remember, people like me with my skin color, we were not people. We were we were cattle. We were animals. We were three fifths of a human being. We weren't even one whole person. We were three fifths. That's in the Constitution. Um, so our nation was founded on a lie. On, on a whole bunch of lies. Our founding fathers were liars. They were rapists. They were they were murderers. They were killing and beating uh, my ancestors because they were slaveholders. So our nation has always been uh, untrue to its ideals. And that's the kind of environment that my ancestors had to uh, exist in. And that's the type of environment that I had to grow up in. A lot of my white colleagues in law enforcement don't like to uh, face that uh, reality. They just want to believe in the red, white, and blue. But the red, white, and blue has always been a false, uh, a false uh, notion. And people need to uh, respect that uh, that truth. Yeah. Well, even I mean, you know, to to put the British on on trial for a second, my my ancestry, we I learned very recently visiting the State Museum in Charleston, we were the ones actually that were going to Africa and other other European nations as well, and and buying the slaves and then selling them to the U.S. So it kind of looks like the U.K.'s hands were kind of clean and they actually you know weren't at all. And then also forgetting. Um, African nations for a moment, what we did to the indigenous tribes here in America, what we did in, in Australia, you know, that, that is an element of history that's very downplayed. And as, as an immigrant coming in, you know, the comment I get a lot is, well, you know, England has a, has a, a long history. I'm like, well, so does the US. If you, <laughs> if you incorporate the native tribes that were here before my fellow, you know, Europeans arrived on this, this country. That's true. And I have, uh, colleagues, uh, especially past colleagues in law enforcement, who like to point out, white colleagues, I might add, who like to point out that, well, my ancestors, they'll say, my ancestors didn't uh, have slaves. I wasn't a slaveholder. So why should I feel anything about uh, what happened to the slaves? Why should I feel any guilt towards that? And then they like to point out, well, there were blacks who uh, participated in the slave trade that cooperated with the slavers and, uh, you know, don't blame it all on whites. And there's an element of truth to that. But that doesn't excuse the fact that whites dominated society. They have always dominated society. And whites were the ones that set the rules. And one wrong uh, uh, does not, uh, uh, one right, I should say, does not uh, correct all the wrongs. And so just because you may not have uh, been directly involved with it because you weren't around at the time, your ancestors probably were. And uh, even if they weren't, there were enough uh, whites back in those days involved in that trade to where uh, it grew and grew and grew until it got out of control. So you are not absolved of uh, guilt of uh, wrongdoing simply because you were not an active participant. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the thing is is just acknowledging it, isn't it? It's not like that individual themselves was responsible or would agree in in any way, shape, or form with it. But I think probably what's jarring the most is this refusal to acknowledge our dark history. And I say our by America, you know, England, Portugal, all these all these countries that have a pretty sinister past. Um, you know, and then the perfect example is, is Nazi Germany. I mean, it, it amazes me how I'm 45 now. So less than my lifespan ago before I was born is when the Nazism was happening, when they were literally, you know, killing hundreds of thousands of Jewish people and gypsies and blacks and, you know, every other person that didn't fit their so-called Aryan image. Which is laughable when I know my history of how many times my country was conquered. There is no such thing as a pure race. We're Swedish and, you know, Roman and French and, you know, all these other, uh, you know, um, cultures that dominated my country before we, for some reason, miraculously became some Aryan nation. Right. Right. A lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that. Right. Well, I'd love to steer you kind of into law enforcement. So as a young man, regardless of skin color, how were the law enforcement perceived by young men in El Paso, Texas? I couldn't say. I never had any encounters with law enforcement. So I lived across the street from a, a black El Paso officer. Uh, I grew up with his daughter, who uh, was one of my best friends in elementary school. And uh, he was always decent with me. He was a good man, good husband, good father. and. Uh, that was my only encounter with uh, police growing up. Um, I never had any negative encounters with uh, police. For one thing, I feared my mother more than I feared police or anyone else. That's the way it should be, isn't and, it? Uh, that's the way it should be. And I knew that if I did wrong, my mother uh, would be there to uh, set me on the right path. And I didn't want to be in, uh, in, in, in her wake. So... I didn't have any involvement with police officers, so I couldn't say uh, what it was like for, for blacks in El Paso. I've heard stories, but that's all I can attest to is the stories that I heard. Yeah, yeah, because as a young white boy in a very rural town, you know, I got not harassed, it's the wrong word, but, you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of the police because they kept thinking we were up to no good, you know, and <laughs> I wouldn't say pulling us over specifically, but, you know, um, it, Guilty until proven innocent, I guess, was the was the uh, way we were viewed. But again, that's just kind of young teen boys that they're up to something. Um, so, what about your personal journey then? How what made you decide that you wanted to join the law enforcement community? I wanted to make enough money to put myself through college and become a high school PE teacher. And what was it about PE specifically that that drew you to that? Uh, at the time, I was. Uh, uh, very physical. I was an athlete and I wanted to be involved in athletics at some point and I wanted to be a, uh, in the teaching profession. So I wanted to be a PE teacher. But after a year of being in, uh, working for the police department in Colorado Springs, I found out that A, I was making twice as much money as a recent college graduate in the teaching profession and B, I was having too much fun working for the police department. So I decided to, uh, stick it out and 32 years later i retired from law enforcement brilliant all right well then the the first assignment that you kind of really talk about in um 
in the book is is not the KKK. It's the uh, the kind of Black Power movement. So tell me about that first undercover assignment. My first undercover assignment was Stokely Carmichael, one of the uh, leaders of the Black Panther Party. That was in 1975, about April of 75. I was assigned to monitor a speech he was giving uh, at a local uh, black uh, bar and to uh, to basically uh, gauge the audience reaction, uh, judge his uh, judge his delivery, his uh, rhetorical delivery, and uh, basically uh, make a determination as to how we as a police agency should respond. Uh, Stokely was a very dynamic, a very powerful speaker. And I was, uh, my, my task was to determine whether we should be concerned as an agency, uh, to his, uh, powers of persuasion and how we should go about, uh, responding to, uh, his rhetorical delivery, uh, and whether we should be concerned about it. So that was my first undercover assignment. Right. And did you... Did you? I know we're going to talk about the KKK. Did you see any any similarities between the extremes of the Black Power Group and the White Power Group? I'm not talking about the the the, the more moderate middle, but but the the extremes of each set each side. No, I didn't. Uh, let me answer it this way. Uh, Extremist groups are basically the same as far as I'm concerned. They have their uh, individual beliefs, but they're on the, uh, they're far on the edges. And, uh, they're going to stick to the edges in terms of their belief patterns and, uh, not reside in the middle. Stokely was on one extreme. The, uh, the KKK people that I later came to deal with were on another extreme. Um, they both thought that their uh, their views were right and that uh, the other groups were wrong. Uh, but they were nowhere in the middle in terms of uh, where America stood. And in my, in my opinion, such... Uh, such uh, groups and their belief patterns are, are all screwed up. Yeah, because that's something that we've I've talked about several times with, with guests, especially that are in law enforcement, military. Is we see now in in, in this generation, this current climate, that what appears to be just a, a severe mental illness that results in you know a horrific bombing, mass shooting, whatever it is, and there's always a clinging to some cause. But there's no rhyme or reason to it. That that's not creating an improvement to whatever cause they're supposedly hailing from. It it's it's just it's mental illness, it's desperation, and, and a feeble attempt at trying to create some sort of reason for their violence. Right. Right. Well, then moving on. Then so you mentioned the KKK. I'd love to hear you know your your take on how you initially found that connection and then just kind of, you know, obviously not tell the whole book, but just the cliff notes of, of your experiences entering the KKK as a black man. Well, that came about as uh, the book and the movie point out. Uh, I was uh, working as an intelligence uh, detective for Colorado Springs Police Department in uh, October of 1978. 
I saw an ad in the newspaper in the classified section. It said Ku Klux Klan for information, and then there was a P.O. box. So I wrote a letter to the P.O. box, basically identifying myself as a uh, white supremacist who had uh, similar beliefs uh, as the KKK and wanted to join uh, to stop the to stop the uh, uh, furtherance of uh, blacks and to uh, promote the white supremacist notion. Uh, so I wrote this letter, gave the undercover uh, phone line, which at that time was an untraceable line, and uh, signed my real name, Ron Stallworth, instead of my undercover name, which I should have done, and put the letter in the mail and forgot about it. But about a week or two later, I got a response back in the form of uh, a phone call to the office on that undercover line. And the voice, uh, a- voice on the phone asked to speak to Ron Stallworth. And I immediately got suspicious because no one called Ron Stallworth on that line. And the voice identified itself as Ken O'Dell, the local chapter president of the KKK in Colorado Springs. And he wanted to know why I uh, wrote the letter requesting membership in the Klan. And you might say that's when my, uh, that's when my investigation officially started because I had to immediately come up with a plan. And I told him that I wanted to join the Klan because I hated uh, niggers, spicks, chinks, Jews, Jacks, and anybody else who wasn't pure Aryan white like I was. His response to me was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? That's that's when I said, oh, shit. So there you are on the end of the phone as a black man, and now you've got to figure out how you can be physically present in front of this KKK member. Like I said, that's when my investigation officially started. I had to come up with a plan, and my plan, obviously, I had to think outside the box and put something together. And uh, we were off and running. Right. So tell me about how you were able to find a colleague who could play you in real life, if that makes sense. In the book, I identify my colleague as Chuck, not his real name. In the movie, he was Adam Driver, and his name was changed to Flip Zimmerman. Chuck was a good undercover uh, detective. He worked narcotics at the time. And he was about my height, my weight, and uh, I wanted Chuck to play me for that reason. So I went to the lieutenant that he worked for, who I had worked, uh, I worked for the same lieutenant in narcotics about a year earlier. And the lieutenant and I had a parting of the ways, uh, wasn't mutual uh, respect that parted our ways. and. I asked the lieutenant for the use of Chuck to play me in this uh, caper. The lieutenant said, you can't have him. I'm not going to waste a valuable undercover operative on a bunch of uh, men wearing white sheets, a bunch of nonsense. And uh, the lieutenant said, besides, your plan won't work because you've already talked to them on the phone. And once Chuck walks in there, they'll recognize the difference between his voice, a white man's voice, and your voice a black man that they'd been talking to on the phone. 
So I asked the lieutenant, I said, what does a black band sound like? And he just stared at me. He couldn't answer me. I asked him that several times, and he never could answer. Finally, he just said, you can't have him. I said, okay. I turned around and walked away, went to my sergeant, told the sergeant what he said. The sergeant said, what do you want to do about it? I said, I want to take it directly to the chief of police. Now, in Colorado Springs, we had a rank structure that consisted of patrolmen and detectives were in the same plane. And then you had uh, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, deputy chief, and chief. So I bypassed four people in the rank structure and went directly to the chief, the top of the rank. It could have been a career-ending move on my part. At that point, I didn't care. I wasn't going to let this lieutenant win. So I went, uh, me and the sergeant went to the chief's office. I told the chief what I had done, my conversation on the phone, my conversation with the uh, lieutenant, and told him my plan. He said, what all do you need? I said, I need two surveillance officers and Chuck to play me. The lieutenant, I mean, the chief got on the phone to the lieutenant. He told the lieutenant to give me anything I needed. And my investigation was off and running at that point. Brilliant. But I want to do a little backstory of the KKK, if you wouldn't mind, to educate us, you know, the audience, because... We're all familiar of the sheets. We're all familiar of the Burning Cross. Some people might have seen Mississippi burning, but um, the history of it, I think, is is almost comical, especially the reason why they're wearing the sheets. So, if if you're able just to kind of educate us from the the Confederacy, like how this this group was even born in the first place, and the purpose of the sheets. The Klan came about as a result of uh, the end of the Civil War. Reconstruction, um, they they were trying to terrorize, or the whole purpose was to terrorize uh, black, the newly freed slaves, to prevent them from gaining any traction in the new um, the new United States, and they did not want these slaves be able to vote or have any uh, sense of uh, franchisement in the new America following the Civil War. So what the KKK did, uh, these veterans, uh, these Southerners, they put on sheets. And in some some cases, they covered their horses as sheets. And they rode around at night with uh, torches, and burning crosses on the property of uh, slaves, their homes and, and uh, farms and whatnot, and basically terrorizing them. And their story was they were the ghosts of, uh, of a recently departed uh, Civil War veterans. And uh, in doing this, the slaves, many of them who were still uh, bound by their African traditions. They believed in spirits, they believed in hauntings, and they were frightened to the core. And so this was how the Klan operated back then, was to keep the uh, newly freed slaves in line. 
and to uh, keep from uh, 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 exercising their franchisement as uh, newly free citizens with power. They wanted them to continue following the old ways of the South and uh, not to uh, not to use anything newly established by the uh, defeat of the South. So that's how the Ku Klux Klan came into being, and uh, that was their sole purpose. Right. Well, another another thing you refer to, and I also remember seeing it on um, a great documentary, 13th. I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, and it's kind of like the history of... of how slavery, in a way, transitioned into imprisonment in modern prison systems. Um, but is the the movie The Birth of a Nation? So again, I, if you're able to kind of tell us a little bit about that and and the the accolades that it got when it came out. The Birth of a Nation came about around 1915 or so. That was a rebirth period for the Ku Klux Klan. They increased their membership uh, oh exponentially. That was their longest uh, dominant period of uh, existence in America. Uh, and D.W. Griffith, a major Hollywood producer, uh, he produced blockbuster movies at the time in the early uh, film days of Hollywood, moving pictures. And Birth of a Nation was one of the first blockbuster movies ever. Um, he produced uh, this movie about the Klan, and basically the Klan, the same a decadent, destroyed society in America, and they came about and rescued that decadent, destroyed society, and uh, they were portrayed as heroes, and it played very well. It was shown in the White House to President Wilson, who was a racist, by the way, and uh, a Klan supporter. And um, he gave it good publicity in his review. And because of that film, the Klan's uh, ranks grew even larger. To this day, the Klan uses Birth of a Nation in their recruitment of new members. Yeah, and watching it, so so just for everyone listening, you have a white guy in blackface pretending to be a black slave who supposedly was accused of raping a white woman and 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 there's a, a lynching and it's and then you know that like you said the clans come in like the the cavalry and and it's it's a, it's a absolutely blatantly you know racist movie you know the, the black people are portrayed as you know like you said like lesser than people um and the fact that that was only a hundred years ago being shown in the white house and hailed as a Hollywood classic just blows me away, but it illustrates the underlying, um, cancer of, of hatred that we had in here. And, and again, to be fair, I'm sure in many other countries, obviously certainly in Germany, but, um, you know, at many other places around the world where one group is viewed as lesser than another. Yes, that's very true. And, uh, the, the propaganda appeal of uh, Birth of a Nation is still uh, very much active uh, this day. Yeah. Well, I want to take a tangent with you because, I mean, this would be a, a fascinating perspective from you personally. As a fireman, um, 
I've witnessed uh, racism in you know in several of the places I've worked. Not from from not overtly by any means, but individuals amongst those those men and women, the white people, black people, you know, Hispanic uh, heritage that are you know blatantly racist towards whites, towards blacks, towards Hispanics, you know, whatever different religions. Yet they wear a badge, and when the tones go off, they go and do their job. And I found that such a, a ridiculous paradox that you hold this. And I don't think any of them had like a, a, an aggressive hatred, but certainly, you know, a, a racist mind that then you would go and put your life at risk for the exact people you say you, you hold disdain to. Um, you came across a firefighter in this particular KKK chapter. So as a, as a policeman yourself, what is your understanding of racism in some of these professions where we're actually willing to die for the very people that some of these men and women are racist towards? I found it curious, to say the least. Uh, you're referring to Fred Wilkins, who was the Grand Dragon for the state of Colorado. He was a fireman for the city, which is a Denver suburb. They tried to fire Fred on several occasions, city of Lakewood did. The problem was, by all indications, he was an exemplary fireman, and they couldn't get rid of him. And Fred even gave articles, newspaper uh, interviews, in which he said he feels that blacks are inferior to whites, and uh, he believes in the, the KKK. When it comes to his job, he puts all of that aside, and he does his job to the best of his ability. So they were never able to use the civil service uh, rules and guidelines to uh, terminate him. And to the best of my knowledge, he retired with a pension. Yeah, and I just find that so strange. I mean, that's that's the, the, the outward symptoms. And obviously, you know, there, there can be just an, uh, an internal opinion that never manifests into anything negative towards a group of people, you know, internal monologue. But obviously, you know, with the Klan, with the the Black Panthers, with you know, with um, these extreme Muslim groups that we're seeing, there's also a lot of of, of violence. You know, with lynchings, perfect example. Um, and I just I don't understand how you can volunteer to be a first responder and still be ignorant enough to hold those kind of hateful prejudices. Like, I mean, I get it if you are you know, working in a, in a factory somewhere and just stewing on that. But when you're putting your life on the line and prepare to die for someone, how can you not look in the mirror and see the hypocrisy of, of this racial hatred that you've been raised with? It just doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. What if you uh, happen to come across a black citizen or a Jewish citizen in need of mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth resuscitation? What would you do? And he said, I would give it to them because that's my job. And uh, I know that if I were in such a situation, I would have hated to have Fred be the one to uh, put down at me and be giving me mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And then again, I just I wonder, you know, what Fred's childhood was like, what his upbringing was like, where he learned to hate because, you know, America now... He grew up in Alabama. Okay, so he was probably surrounded by the same kind of philosophy then. So I want to bring us back to, to, to present day at the moment. 
um, and get your perspective as you know, an officer from from you know a couple of decades ago now, and also you know a, a, a man of color in uniform. At the moment, the current climate uh, is being told a very polarizing story. You've got the the Black Lives Matter movement. You've got the the Blue Lives Matter movement, um, which again, they're, they're two two snapshots of two extremes. Where the reality is, you've got men and women of all colors and creeds putting a badge on their chest, willing to to risk their lives, um, and of which you know I'm proud to serve next to 95 percent of all of them. What is your view on 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 the environment in law enforcement and in in race in general um of our current climate in 2020 uh, i think blue lives matter movement is basically a joke and i'll tell you why no one was ever going around saying blue lives matter until you heard the expression black lives matter no one was going around saying white lives matter until You've heard the expression, Black Lives Matter. These are people, and in terms of Blue Lives Matter, these are people in my profession that decided to jump on the bandwagon and counter-protest those so-called radical extremes that they feel were in the wrong. I don't feel it's necessary. Uh, the people of Black Lives Matter are not revolutionary terrorists. They're people that are simply trying to live and survive in America who are being, who are being treated wrongfully, whose constitutional rights are being violated, and they're protesting that. And as part of their protest, the slogan Black Lives Matter was coined. And I've always said, and I told uh, Jay Dobbins this, if somebody's rights are being violated, if the Constitution is not being adhered to, then the uh, person violating those rights needs to be booted out of the profession. They're bad cops. They're dirty cops. I don't adhere to bad cops of any kind concept of uh, Blue Lives Matter, I think, is a false notion. Yes, Blue Lives Matter. I'm not saying that our lives don't. But I don't need to go around proclaiming Blue Lives Matter and everything simply because there's a group called Black Lives Matter where constitutional rights are being violated by people in blue uniforms. Yeah, so so to to play devil's advocate, well, not even, that's, that's the wrong even phrase. So just to... So that's that's the the dirty cops, like you said, and and no one, I don't think, of any sound mind is going to argue that. But then we've got a lot of a lot of um, uh, gray area, you know, where the the cops are truly defending themselves. You know, they're having to pull their weapon, um, which I think they're getting dragged into into that side as well. Where you know we're asking men and women of law enforcement to you know, to go out at night, to, to work these extra shifts, they're sleep deprived, they might be undertrained. And some of these grayer areas may be, you know, a training issue, uh, an overworking issue, still horrendous, still tragic, whoever, you know, was on the receiving end. But I, I feel like there's that polarizing thing, like every shooting, the cop was wrong is how it's being told now, regardless, again, of, of the, the skin color of the cop and or the person that was shot. And I, I think it's a very dangerous thing to just say, oh, it's, 
it's it's always race that's causing this because it's not. There's 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 all these underlying areas that we can improve on to stop our citizens of all colors being as likely to commit crimes, whether it's drug policy, whether it's prison reform, um, and obviously train our men and women in law enforcement to to be able to, for example, go to go to hands rather than use their weapons. You know, the jujitsu, the strength training, the the um, uh, you know, the tactical training, those kind of things. So um, what, what's your view on that, that you've got the dirty cops? There's no question, hands down, that like the Rodney King's a perfect example. That was you know, a disgrace. But what about the ones where, you know, you're seeing it where you as a law enforcement officer would say, well, I might have actually done the same thing myself in that position. Police officers have always had to connect with uh, issues of confrontation with the public. It's how you contend with those issues that comes into question. And when you are doing things that go against the grain of the Constitution, as you've been, as you have been trained to do, that's when you get into trouble. That's what I'm talking about. But when you have a situation like uh, uh, Mr. Scott down in South Carolina a couple of years back, where he was running away from that officer, and it was clearly shown on video, that officer pulled his gun and shot him in the back from about 13 feet away. That is wrong. There is no justification for that. And yet my colleagues in law enforcement around the country defended that officer. That is wrong. There is no excuse for that. I don't condone that in any way, shape or form. You cannot you cannot talk that your way out of that. That is a classic example of a bad cop. And that is not a good example of Blue Lives Matter. That's an example of a dirty cop that needs to be put away for an extended period of time and doesn't belong in the profession. It's those type of situations that I'm talking about. Yeah, and I agree. And I've, I've had, you know, like so many police officers murdered here just in the Orlando area that I either, you know, had worked with or were in my my neighboring counties. Um, you know, so that's the other side is we're getting all these police officers murdered. So my thing is this. You've got the criminals on the street who are a result of, you know, s- several areas that I think we can improve. You've got the the police officers on the, on the street who, you know, can be trained better and or we create an environment where it's not as dangerous for them. There are countries in, in the world where the police don't get <laughs> don't shoot people. They don't get shot them either, you know, so. Um, you know, what, a couple of areas that I've talked about, um, a lot on this podcast. One is, uh, uh, the legalization of drugs. So the addict becomes a patient, not a criminal. You know, they're not locked away, which is a big thing about the 13th movie I was talking about. Um, and that worked very well in Portugal. I interviewed the guy that spearheaded that in Portugal. Um, and then, and then prisons. Again, if it, right now we have a profit based prison system. We're not driven to to stop you know reoffending because when our prisons are full, someone's getting very very rich. So for me, fixing those social areas will not only make it safer for the citizens, regardless of color, but also you know our brothers and, and sisters in blue, because now the streets aren't going to be as dangerous and they're not going to be as apt to even pull their weapon in the first place. What I am talking about simple. Don't defend bad cops. My colleagues in blue, I have been rejected by a lot of uh, police officers 
guys that I work with in Colorado Springs simply because I will not stand up and defend the police profession, right or wrong, when incidents arise that garner public um, garner a lot of public attention. I judge each I judge each situation separate. And you go back to the Scott situation down in South Carolina. There is no justification for what happened down there. That was clearly wrong. And yet I've got colleagues that defend that officer that say he was wrongfully judged that uh not have been condemned, he should not have been convicted, uh and will yell blue lives matter. And I say fuck that. Blue lives don't matter in that situation. He's a dirty cop. He needs to be condemned for what he did. He murdered a man. It was caught on camera in the discussion. And if, you, if, if, if police officers don't agree with me on that, then fuck them too. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think most people would absolutely agree with you, Ron. That's the thing. And I think there was another one just released, and I haven't heard people's take on it. But again, from... What I watched, it was two officers. I think all three people were black, if I remember rightly. Um, the, you know, the, the perpetrator, criminal, whatever you want to call the gentleman that was being detained. Um, and then a female and a male officer. And they're struggling with him. I think they deployed a taser. It didn't work. And, you know, the one black officer said, shoot him. And, you know, told his partner to shoot the guy. Now they were laying on hands, but very ineffectively. So again, in that situation, you know, had they been trained, like, I mean, you did show account when you were in, in, you know, in law enforcement and been able to effectively restrain that, that gentleman, then, um, you know, he, he wouldn't have need to be shot in the first place. Now, I, th- I believe he was in critical care, but actually didn't die. So that's obviously a, a good thing. But, you know, going to the weapon, the, some of these ones that I see, it's a lack of training as well. You know, it's a lack of physical fitness. It's a lack of understanding of of, of grappling and combatives. Um, and I think that's another area that, that some agencies are doing it very well, but some agencies definitely need to do a lot better. And I don't think anyone, anyone no fireman's going to defend a shitty fireman. I've had people on here who's one gentleman lost his son because of a, an awful series of events with a couple of paramedics. No one's going to stand behind them. A 14-year-old boy died. So I think anyone stands behind a true bad cop is is completely in the wrong so i think that most people listening would agree with you and it's trying to fix the the gray areas and trying to create an environment where there's just less crime in general where we do proactive initiatives that stop people getting to that point where they're addicts where they're in gangs where whatever it is that's creating this crime that we see is so rife in america compared to a lot of other countries in the world i would agree with that but as i said earlier each situation should be judged individually, not collectively thrown together in, in, a, in a posture of uh, blue lives matter. Some situations are clearly visible as being wrong. I will not defend a bad cop or his uh, bad actions. I will not stand by that. I will not join that blue wall of silence and uh, just direct a barrier for any outside uh, protest by saying blue lives matter. For, to me, that's bullshit. And if I stand, if I stand alone in that, then I stand alone. Yeah, 
Well, and just, and just, you do do a great example of doing the, the converse as well. So just to throw the other side in, in the book, you talk about a young black boy who murdered someone at a, at a restaurant. So tell me that story. And again, your, your view of that and how, how it was almost like tarring with, with, with the same brush on that side too. Yeah, it was a um, 15 year old kid, I believe, a white cook. Cook was working in a 24 hour diner in Colorado Springs. And uh, the cook got off work. He had a young daughter, I believe. He got off work, was walking home, and a uh, car pulls alongside of him, gets his attention, and a gunshot rings out. The detectives pieced it all together. The uh, 15 year old kid basically uh, shot the man. Because he was curious to see what it would like to kill somebody. Now, he was arrested, charged with uh, capital homicide, I believe it was, uh, into the court system as an adult uh, with the death penalty. Or not the death penalty, he was brought into the court system as an adult. The black community in Colorado Springs went up their arms over the fact that he was not treated as a juvenile, and the prosecutor was accused of uh, racial prejudice. So the black community got together. One of the uh, Baptist churches, they managed to convince Dr. Abernathy to come into town and uh, to take up the cause of this young black kid. And Dr. Abernathy... uh, came in and was helping to crusade on behalf of the kid. I was assigned to be Dr. Abernathy's bodyguard because it was still during my Klan investigation, and they were protesting Dr. Abernathy's presence. I sat down with Dr. Abernathy in his hotel room, and I asked him if he knew the story of um, this young black kid. He said he knew what he'd been told. Well, to make a long story short, Dr. Abernathy had not been told the total story by the uh, church members in order to get him to come. Here you have Dr. Abernathy, a venerable, respected leader in the uh, civil rights movement at the time. And uh, they managed to convince him to come into town. And uh, he's arguing, fighting on behalf of this murderer. Dr. Abernathy, after he had been told the truth about this kid, that he had wrongfully murdered the man just to see what it was like to kill somebody, that the man was a husband, a father of a young daughter, Dr. Abernathy's whole opinion changed, but he was trapped. He had already committed himself in writing and broadcast and in from the pulpit. Basically, he had been blackmailed. I witnessed it all. He didn't deserve that. So the kid was convicted of uh, murder. To the best of my knowledge, he spent something like 35, 40 years in prison. I don't know what eventually became of him, where he's at to this day. But that's an example of a wrongful situation 
that never should have happened. Yeah, exactly. So, like you said, the bad cop should never have happened. That should never have happened. And to to tar all those cases with the same brush is wrong. And we talk about even with nutrition, with fitness, with everything. No, no people are the same, and no incidences are the same. And so, I, I agree, you know, one hundred percent. And I thought it was very, very powerful to use that example as well. That you know, each of these individual things are their own case. And if you have this knee jerk to to every cop that's killed or every black person that's killed, they're, they're not the same. You know, the, you know the, there's all these different degrees. And, and the, the sooner we treat these individuals as individual cases and stop having this, this huge response, the more those individuals can actually get justice because one might be completely wrong and the other one might be completely right. So, um, yeah, so I thank you for, for including that as well. Um, I want to I just do one more kind of area wrap up and then do some wrap-up questions. But the closing of the movie specifically was heart-wrenching. It really was. And you have these two parallel stories, one of, of Jesse Washington, who was uh, basically lynched in Waco, Texas, and, and a friend of his who's now an elderly gentleman telling the story. And then also the, um, the Charlottesville attack that we had just a few years ago, the neo-Nazi drove into the, the protesters. Um, and ironically killed a white woman. Um, the, obviously, there's a, there's a subtext there to this is what happened 100 years ago, and there's still this element that we're seeing today. I had a gentleman on whose brother, um, sister-in-law and her sister, uh, Dea Yusor and Razan, who were Muslim, were murdered by a white neighbor, and it was you know absolutely a, a hate crime. So... What are you seeing now? Obviously, you know, not everyone in the community is like that, but what is the danger of uh, white supremacy in America in 2020? The danger of white supremacy in America in 2020 lies in the White House. Plain and simple. Donald Trump is the biggest danger representing America. He and his administration, his followers, he is the titular leader of the white supremacist movement. And America did this to itself by putting him there. And we have to ride out the storm right now. Now, what it, I, I, I point this out a lot. So the last two people that we had, and I'm talking them as individuals, this isn't a... Uh, a political thing at all. I, I don't hail from, from left or right. I'm just, you know, me and my own personal opinion. But I question a lot why we ended up with those last two people. Neither of two of those I would have ever in, you know, a million years wanted to select from, let's say, the top 100,000 people that should have been in line for the presidency. From your, your perspective now with obviously, you know, multiple decades behind you, what is your view on our political system and how we're not seeming to get what I would view as true leaders, you know, that, that, that we can really respect? And I'm sure you know, everyone can name 20 people they would be honored to, to have as our president, male, female, whatever, you know, whatever color, military service, um, that we just seem to have such a poor choice when it comes to the end now. If I've got friends who, insist that Barack Obama was the devil incarnate when it comes to uh, American politics. That all he did was promote issues and uh, 
things that appeal to black people. And when I ask them to be specific, they can't. They just say it was for the blacks. Notice I said the blacks, not black people, because that's how they put it. It was for the blacks, which is a racist way of uh, uh, saying black people. Uh, why doesn't the same principle apply to George Bush II and to Ronald Reagan and all the other white presidents that preceded Barack Obama? They never have an answer for that. In other words, it's about race. But they love everything Trump is doing. They called Barack Obama an imperial president because he was uh, governing a lot by executive orders simply because the Republicans were erecting a barrier from him governing because they didn't want to cooperate with him. They didn't want to give him any wins. Well, Donald Trump is doing the same thing. Not for the same reason. He's doing the same thing simply because he doesn't understand the political process and he's changing a lot of things through executive order that they apply him. Don't say he's uh, governing by imperial decree like they did with Obama. It's racist. And it's racist, uh, racism-oriented. Uh, but they believe in what they're uh, championing. They believe in Donald Trump, and they are against everything that Obama stood for. And when you put the two side by side, there is no comparison. Barack Obama was governing on behalf of the American people. Donald Trump is doing things on behalf of Donald Trump and his uh, uh, empire. So I recognize the fact that America has slipped politically. We've got this racist in the White House. And until we get rid of him, by any means necessary, you can take that any way you want. I particularly don't care, but he needs to be gotten rid of. And uh, until we weather this bad uh, situation. Yeah. So my my view is this of of coming from a different country is my hope is that you know we we're going to have a leader someone who is intent on on making our country better and I mean that for the people so it doesn't matter to me if that person happens to be black white hindu gay straight whatever just the best leader the best person the person that's going to improve our schools that's going to Give healthcare so eighty-year-olds don't have to stand in Walmart. You know, um, prison reform and drug reform, so we don't have homelessness and ad addiction problems and all this crime. And I'm still waiting to see that. You know, that it's 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 been person after person that's wearing different color ties that may have short, you know, uh, maybe you know this skin tone, that skin tone, whatever. But it seems to be the same kind of person, you know, and, and but I, I have to say, I'll, I'll be very, very blunt. When you start throwing out statements like Mexicans are rapists and murderers, then yeah, you are definitely stepping over the line of decency um, and, you know, diplomacy as well. You're starting to, to, to poke the bear, as it were. But my my yearning is to find a, a an American, 
And we are an immigrant culture. Some, like you said, historically were, were forced here when you look far enough back. But we're a proud nation of men and women of all creeds and colors. And we just need a good human being to, to be proud of and to start overturning some of the things. We, we are you know, one of the most chronically ill nations on the planet, yet we're one of the most affluent. I mean, it's just such a, 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 a disengagement of wealth and, and health and happiness. And, and so I hope that whoever we get next, left, right, you know, independent, whoever it is, is someone who who truly wants to make this better, and obviously, you know, with with the racial tension, address that side too, because that polarizing is not doing anything other than dividing this nation that we all adore. Well, everything you just mentioned is supposed to be how the system works. We're supposed to go for the best person that will bring the country together and work on behalf of the people of this country. I challenge anybody show where Donald Trump has done any of that. He hasn't. Conversely, I challenge anybody to show where Barack Obama did just the opposite. They can't show that. So we need to find somebody that will go back and do the right thing. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's it. That's That's what the flag means. It doesn't mean an individual. It means the country. And I think I've talked about this in many episodes, but you know, it's it's making our own community better. And it's what you did in Colorado Springs Police Department. And it's what everyone that's listening to this, this, this podcast is doing, whether they're first responders or in hospitals or, or, you know, corrections, whatever it is. Um, and I, I think all we ask is that the people in, in these government buildings do the same as the men and women that are on the streets protecting them. Yeah, but it's hard for the people in government buildings to do their job when you have somebody at the head of uh, the government was forever attacking them for trying to do their job yeah yeah and the same down i mean police fire you know that i mean they even in internationally like the my uh british you know brothers and sisters are constantly on strike i mean they're they're being cut and you know the nhs is being attacked which is their healthcare system there which i think is amazing um so yeah the people that are out there trying to make the world better are constantly fighting an uphill battle and it should be the other way around they should be given the support of the infrastructure because they are the ones making the world better. They're the ones there, you know, running on people on their worst day. So anyway, Ron, I want to go some, some uh, wrap up questions so I can let you go. You've been very generous with your time. Um, your book is black Klansman. I want to recommend it to everyone there. You actually narrate the audio book as well, which is what I did. I do want to, <laughs> I do want to do a warning though. I was listening, I had my windows down and pulled into a gas station and then you start reciting some of the things that some of the clansmen said. And I'm like, oh shit, oh shit. I'm raising up my uh, my windows and turning down the stereo. So be careful when you're listening to the audio book. But uh, yeah, it's an incredible book and I, I urge everyone to listen to that. Um, so firstly, where where else can people find your book? Barnes & Noble uh, is the best place to find it. But any, uh, any good bookstore in your community probably will have it. And if not, you can get it on Amazon and uh, uh, on Kindle. Brilliant. So another question I'd like to ask, is there um, another book, like someone else's book, that you love to recommend to people? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah, if you want to read about the uh, Ku Klux Klan, a good uh, book about their rise to political power and, and it parallels What's going on in America today is a book by Linda Gordon. 
G-O-R-D is in David O-N, called The Second Coming of the KKK. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, now, again, with the movie, so Black Klansman is, is the movie and very well done. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny because there's, there's some, when you listen to the, to the book or read the book, you realize there's some, some fictional elements in there as well. But, uh, aside from the little, um, frills they put on to make it, uh, more attractive, I guess, to, to a film goer, it pretty much stays true to your story. So I highly recommend people reading it and seeing the film. Are there any movies that you love? Um, uh, Malcolm X, likely. I think it's probably his best movie. At least, in my opinion, I think it's his best movie, uh, excluding uh, Black Klansman. I I like a lot of movies, um, and Malcolm X is probably one of the better ones that have ever ever been made. <clears throat> Yeah, that's an observation I've I've talked about a couple times on here as well with with award ceremonies. Is that Denzel Washington won uh, an award for Training Day, and and for some reason the Academy that year wanted to make it like a a black actor year, but it was it was crazy because if you've ever seen Cry Freedom that he did about Steve Biko in South Africa, and then Malcolm X, um, uh, to me are far more powerful performances than than uh, Training Day. So it's it's um. It's it's a shame that he didn't win an Academy for, in my opinion, much better performances. Well, one thing I learned about my year in the Hollywood scene is that the Academy Award does not necessarily go to the best movie. It goes to the studio that puts out the best political uh, barrage promoting their movie. So the, the people that win, movies that win, are basically the ones that pump the most money into uh, promoting their movie. So not too dissimilar from politics then? I'll give you an example. The movie Roma that was uh, leading went into the movies. A lot of people were saying it was going to win this movie. It didn't, but uh, it won all the, the awards leading up to the uh, Academy. Roma was spending $30 million in their ad campaign for, uh, I mean, the studio was spending $30 million on their ad campaign for Roma. Black Klansman wasn't uh, spending probably half of that. That's that's a huge amount of money. That sounds like the, the budget for the movie itself. Uh, in some cases, it, it is. Right. Well, then, on the movie theme, what about documentaries? Are there any documentaries that you love? I recently saw Kobe Bryant's uh, Dear Basketball. I loved it. Brilliant. Yeah. Rest in peace. All right. Well, I've got one to, to, to suggest for you then. I think you would love 13th, 13th. Um, it's uh, Ava DuVernay uh, on our legal system here. They talk about Birth of a Nation in that, that, uh, that documentary, but it's extremely well done and very, very powerful. Um, and it talks a lot about slavery into, into the prison. So I think you'd probably love that one. Um, all right. So the next question, and I asked Jay this, and you were one of the people that he, he told me about. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Uh, Jerry Flowers. Flowers, okay. F-L-O-W-E-R-N. And what's his background? Jerry uh, was an Oklahoma City uh, inspector detective. Uh, he was one of the first responders at the Oklahoma City bombing. 
And uh, he worked uh, gangs with me, good friend of mine. And uh, he retired from Oklahoma City Police Department and be- became head of the Oklahoma uh, Bureau of Agriculture uh, Investigators. They're what they call the cattle cops. And uh, he retired from there and became a uh, marshal in Oklahoma. And he recently... Uh, retired from there and to be honest with you i don't know what he's doing right now but jerry's got over 40 years in law enforcement and uh, he's still going strong wow yeah hopefully he's resting now after all that my god um yeah i would love to connect with him if you were able to to connect us up it sounds like an incredible story and i had uh chris fields on the show who was when you think about the Oklahoma bombing, there was that one very tragically iconic picture of a fireman holding a, a baby who had passed. That was Chris, and he, he came on the show about a year ago. Was it the headless baby? Uh, wasn't headless, no, but she had passed away. Uh, they they pulled her from the rubble, but but she didn't make it. So it was a very, very sad story. Jerry tells the story of uh, going through the uh, rubble and... Uh of a first responder picking up a baby and carrying him. And when they finally got to safety, looking at the baby and looked down and there was no head. Oh, God. Yeah, because there was a whole kindergarten on the uh, or a daycare on, on the ground floor. Yeah. That's awful. Awful. All right. Well, one more question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress when you want to relax these days? I read a lot. And I write. I'm working on a follow-up to my book, about 50 pages into it, and uh, it keeps me grounded. Excellent. Well, please let me know when it's ready. I will definitely you know, let everyone listening know that, uh, that the new one is out. Um, all right. Well, I want to thank you so much. Where can people find you online if they want to reach out? Do you have social media or website? Oh, not really. Uh, you can contact me at the... Uh, Ron Stahl, S-T-A-L-L, at AOL.com. All right. Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much. I know this this weird Englishman kind of came out of nowhere and asked you if you do a, an hour and a half conversation with him. But, um, you know, your story is so powerful. Your your perspective is unique and, you know, very raw and honest. Um, but it needs to be heard. You know, we, we hear so much about certain groups that are creating a huge amount of, you know, death and destruction in our country at the moment. but this is an area where we don't hear as much, but I mean, you know, when you read the paper closely, it, it does happen a lot. So it is a topic that needs to be, you know, talked about. And then, and then the 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 irony is is the the story through your perspective. There's there's an there's an amount of humor to it as well, like the ridiculousness of, of elements of the clan too. But I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and and allowing me to to kind of hear your journey from your perspective. No worries, no worries. Thanks a lot.